Listen to this. It's God's word. We can bank our lives on this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's not a great word to end on, but that's where we're going to stop today. So if you would, pray, pray with me, and then we'll dive in. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting, never giving up, always and forever love. We thank you that we gather as your people. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with hope and that you would fill us with expectation that you have the power to put your hands on us and move us and change us and to make us more like Jesus. You have the power through your Holy Spirit to unlock whatever's going on in our hearts and free us to run to Christ again and again and again. You have the power to address dark things in us and difficult things, and you have the power to magnify our joy. So fill us with hope and expectation that that's what you're gonna do. You are going to equip us for everything good, for everything that we need to do your will. So have your way with us. And work in my mind and my heart to remember the things that you've given me to say. For I'm weak and I forget a lot of things. So help me, Lord. Help all of us that we might bring you glory and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's where we're going this morning. Here's the roadmap. The first thing we're going to look at is this, a universal problem. And the second thing is this, take someone with you. So a universal problem and then take someone with you. Got that? That's where we're going this morning. So let's jump into this universal problem, which by the way corresponds to verses 12 through 15. So let's look at those verses first. A universal problem. As we gather here today, don't we all recognize that the world is broken? I mean, that's not that hard to recognize, right? We, we see families that really, really struggle. We know the difficulty of work and the challenges at work, right? I mean, no one has a perfect place to work. There's pressure, there's politics, there's expectations, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Working is hard. And oh, by the way, that's not the way it was originally meant. Work was meant to be something that was good and worshipful, but now it's hard and we know that. We feel it. We age through it. We lose sleep. Disease. Anybody know anybody that's diseased? We feel it. I'm experiencing it. You are too. We know that there's disease all over the place. There are broken, the, the system is broken everywhere. The world is broken. And it doesn't take us much 
to understand that and to see that and even experience that. So if the world is broken, what does that mean? Well, it means this, that all of our trials are temptations. What these verses are showing us is that trials are temptations. And if this is a little rocky starting out, just hang in there. It'll make sense, at least I hope anyway. There's a universal problem. The world is broken. So what God does, he takes us into looking at why the world is broken and what's going on. And in order to do that, we have to recognize that trials are temptations. Here's something if y'all like to do a little bit deeper dive into the book of James. The word in verse 2 for trials is the exact same word in verse 13 for temptations. Trials are temptations. That's what God's communicating to us. Remember what trials are? Trials are when we feel pressure from the outside that comes into our lives and cracks us open. Remember that? And when it cracks us open, it exposes what's going on inside and what we really base our lives upon and what we really are living for. When trials come into our lives, it breaks us open so that we come to the end of ourselves. When we have no wisdom, when we realize we have no power, where we really have no control, and we're at the end of ourselves. Remember that? And in that moment, when we come to the end of self, last week we looked at the fact that we needed wisdom. Well, when we come to the end of self, what is happening in that moment when we need wisdom is that we are facing temptation. Temptation is what is going on inside of us. Trials are pressure from the outside. Temptation comes from within. And when we go through temptation, there is always change. Always change. No one ever stays neutral through temptation. No one ever does. When temptation comes, we either move toward being a kind of people that are growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. We are the kind of people that are growing toward wisdom, something that we don't have, that we need from outside of us. We are either moving toward getting outside of ourselves and clinging to wisdom and craving wisdom, or when temptation comes, we begin to curve more on ourselves, meaning that we grow in pride and bitterness, and anger, and hostility, and the, and the fight to want to maintain control, <clears throat> the illusion of control. But boy, it's deep to fight for control, isn't it? When temptation comes, we either go toward the Lord Jesus Christ, or we go more toward self. We either are more curved on ourselves or fruit is produced in us that only God can do. Meaning that we start to understand more about other people and we're, as we're understanding more about ourselves. Meaning that we're starting to see our need for Jesus more. But man, it sure is tempting to want to be more about self, isn't it? 
It sure is tempting to feel justified in bitterness, or it sure is tempting when temptation comes to depend more on self, doesn't it? It's so tempting because there's so many things that we think that we can fix. And just in case you haven't noticed, the older you get, the more challenging the trials typically are, and therefore the deeper the temptation. And that doesn't mean that if you're here and you're young that you haven't faced any significant, deep, soul-wrenching trials or temptation. That's not what I'm saying. Just saying that the older you get, the more you realize how weak you are and things don't really go like you wanted them to. And maybe you even realize that what I had planned for me actually wasn't as beneficial as what God had planned for me, even through the difficult things. Sound familiar? Trials are temptations. It's where we get exposed. So look at these verses in 12 through 15. It's telling us that trials are temptations, and then it's even giving us, if you will, like a taxonomy of temptation. Did you notice that in verse 14 and 15? Here's, here's it in a nutshell. In other words, if you want to look even deeper under the microscope at temptation, here's what you'll find. Sexual imagery. Well, look at the text. Desire, when it... Um, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see that? God is giving us sexual imagery because it, it connects. We know what it's like to de desire something, and we know what conception is like, and we know what it's like to have things born. And we know what it's like to even have grandchildren. So what's birthed is um, sin, and, and the grandchild of sin is death. So God is getting into our minds and getting into our hearts that this is what temptation is like. You got to think about your desires because when pressure comes from the outside through a trial and cracks you open and exposes the fact that you can't fix everything or control everything and you're at the end of yourself, it is at that moment that you are enduring temptation. And when you endure temptation, it means that you got a lot of desires that are going on. And oh, by the way, this isn't just normal desires, but like epi-desires, over-desires. In other words, let's try to work this out. Um, most of you are really interested in your career. Most of you are really interested in your jobs. Most of you are interested in uh, financial security. Most of us are interested in uh, being competent in our jobs. By the way, I'm interested in financial security as well in my career, sorry. Most of us are interested in um, certain relationships. And that's normal, those are desires that we have. But when something is an over-desire, that's when it becomes a problem. In other words, and you've heard this before, Epi-desires or idols in our lives are when good things become ultimate things. Is me wanting to be competent in my job a bad thing? Please say no. 
is me wanting some level of financial security appropriate? Yes. How about, how about wanting um, a productive career? Is that a good thing? Yes. How about having appropriate relationships? Yes. All those things are good desires. But when they become an over-desire, in other words, when I begin to think in my heart, when I feel the temptation of thinking that my job is what indicates my worth, that's temptation. And oh, by the way, I have the temptation every week to think that these 30 to 40 minutes justify my existence. It's true. And I struggle with that and I fight that. Relationships are great. But when we begin to think that if I lose this particular relationship, then my life will be worth nothing, that desire is temptation. And giving into that will bring forth death. It means financial security is important, but if I live for the almighty dollar and make all my decisions based on financial things, that's an over-desire. If I don't have happiness unless I am successful in a worldly sense, unless I have a better career, or unless I have greater financial stability, it's a problem. That's temptation. And giving in to that temptation, fulfilling that desire will lead to death. Meaning, if my career is most important to me, then guess what I will sacrifice for my career? My family. Guess what else? Guess what other way death comes about and we see death in our lives if our career is too important? It's not just that we sacrifice our family, but we don't know how to rest. Anyone struggle with rest? It's because we want to work so hard, which is a good thing, but that desire has gone overboard such that we feel as though we have no worth unless we are advancing in our career, unless our career is most important. So we'll sacrifice our family and we won't know how to rest. Won't even be a priority. Rest, that's for losers. The only way that I'm gonna make it is if I outwork someone else. Do you get the mentality? It brings about death. Relationship, good things. Having children, should God bless, great things. But if that becomes your identity, if that becomes the thing by which you determine your worth, it'll bring about death. Because you'll try to micromanage your own children to such an extent that if they do anything wrong, you can't stand it when you find out that they did something wrong because your identity is wrapped up in being a parent. Therefore, you'll feel that you're worth nothing and are so embarrassed that you can't even face anyone. Ever sound familiar? But when they do well... Oh, well, that brings incredible amount of worth to your life so that we begin to think, I am a great person because look at how my children turned out. Finding worth, ultimate worth in good things is dangerous. It can't sustain you. Even relationships, if that relationship, whatever it is, a boss, a coworker, a lover, if that relationship, a spouse, if that relationship 
to want that is a good thing, but to desire it too much means that you expect that relationship to save you. It means that whenever that person lets you down, that you can't stand it because they've got to be your savior. They've got to be the one that makes your life worth living. In other words, you crush them with your expectations and are easily crushed when they don't meet your expectations. Are relationships good? Yes, thank you. Desiring these things you see is not bad, but when they become over-desires, they ultimately conceive and bring about sin. And when sin continues to grow, it brings about death. So we end up crushing those who are around us and getting crushed by our careers and putting our hope in things that vanish. And that's not the way we were made. You see? It's not the way God has designed us. He designed us to learn from him and to be like him and follow what he says in our careers and with our financial desires and with our sexual desires and with our relational hopes and with everything that we learn from him. Because we're just left to ourselves, all we have is over desires. <laughs> because we're looking for what can't be found in all these things that do not satisfy. And my hunch is if you're like me, you probably got a lot of scars from trying to find ultimate worth and meaning in those things. God is saying, under the microscope, let's look together at this temptation. Here's what it is. It's desire. That's an over-desire that leads to sin and death. And that means this. We do what we do because we love what we love. We do what we do because we love what we love. Because our desires are driving everything about our actions. They're the reason why we do what we do. Well, that means this. You see, sin is not simply breaking the rules. God's saying sin is actually spiritual adultery. That's why the Old Testament is full of sexual imagery to talk about sin and rebellion. It's why James uses it here, because it's everywhere, because we can relate to that and connect with it. Sin is not just breaking the rules, it's committing spiritual adultery. It's trying to find who we are based on something that isn't God himself and what he says. And that means this, that ultimately, as these verses say, say there's only one cause for sin. Look back through the verses. It's not God's fault. He doesn't, he doesn't tempt any man, nor is he tempted by sin. In other words, the only cause for sin and brokenness in the world is us. It's me. The problems in my life are because I have a problem with my desires. The problems in my life are because I'm the one that's responsible. I used this illustration a while ago, and I'm sure I borrowed it from someone. 
But if you were in the business of feeding big cats, you know, let's just say you were trying to be Joey Exotic for a little bit or Carol Baskins, and you had these big cats that you had to feed every day, and you gave them two choices. One choice was this magnificent, gigantic bowl of Moose Tracks ice cream. And the other option for this big cat that you got to feed is steak. That big cat, that tiger is going to that steak 10 out of 10 times. He is never going for that moose tracks, which means I will eat it. (laughs) Our desires are always driving what we do. We do what we do because we love what we love. We are the ones who are at fault. We are the ones who are guilty for this. And there's no escaping it. So how in the world do we deal with temptation? If God takes us under the microscope and says, all right, there's a problem in the world. There's a problem in the world. It's a universal problem. Everything is broken and we know it. Well, what does that mean? And God says, well, because trials in living in a broken world are temptations. When you get cracked open, at that moment when you come to the end of yourself, you're really facing temptation. And what temptation is, is when your desires get enticed. And when you give in to those desires, what happens is ultimately death. And we feel that. So what do we do? What do I do when I face temptation? What can you do when you face temptation? This is our second point. You take someone with you. You take someone with you. Look at verses 9 through 11. Let me show you what I mean. How in the world does this fit? How does verse 9 through 11 fit with 12 through 15 and fit with all this stuff? Let me show you. We have to take someone with us. You see, James brings out something that has been going on in the church for centuries and millennia. He brings out the rich and the poor. And he wants us to think about the rich and the poor. And he wants us to bring someone with us. Let me show you. Both the rich and the poor represent trials and temptation. Both the rich and the poor represent what it's like to endure a trial and to endure temptation and to need wisdom and actually to grow in wisdom through either being rich or poor. Let me show you. When James talks about the poor, He's not talking about those who have an addiction to spending. He's not talking about those who have an addiction to a way of life where everything is just getting better and better and newer and faster and bigger and stronger. He's not talking about that. Nor is he talking about people who refuse to work. He's talking about people who are caught up in a broken system who don't have the relational resources by which to get out. He's talking about people that are looked down upon because of their economic status. And he says, that is a trial and that is a temptation because if you are poor, not because you won't work, 
And not because you're addicted to spending and just can't stop spending and expect everything to get better and better all the time. And so your life is the result of thinking that everything's supposed to get better and I'm always supposed to get promoted and I'm always supposed to make more money, but yet you have less and less and are more and more dead. He's not talking about that. He's talking about how this being poor, being stuck in a system that's broken, not have the way to get out, it's stuck there that we can see a trial and temptation. Because it's easy when you're poor to think. that my identity is based upon what I don't have. And if I just had more and was like this person or that person, then I would be better. The rich person he spends more time on, doesn't he? If you read through church history, you'll find the ancients say things like this. Being prosperous and being rich is actually perhaps suggestively the number one temptation. You know why? Because it's a trial to think that you don't have any trials. It's a danger to think that because of your economic status, you aren't in any danger. It's a temptation to think, I have what I have because of what I have done. Therefore, my identity and who I am and my worth is based upon what I have. And James is saying both of these are trials and both of them are temptations. Because it's always a temptation for those that have a lot to think, I've done all this on my own. But do you notice what James says? He says, let the poor man exalt in what? Or boast in what? His exaltation. And let the rich man boast in his humiliation. Do you get what James is saying here? He's saying when you live your life, take someone with you. When you live your life, everything is a trial and everything is a temptation and we need wisdom. And who do we say wisdom is? A person. In other words, the, those that are poor and those that are rich should be thinking about their lives through Jesus because he is wisdom embodied. In other words, what is, how, how in the world can a poor person meditate on his being exalted? How can he do that? The world looks at him and says, you're no good. So the world looks at him and blame, perhaps blames him for who he is or what he's done or what he hasn't done. How in the world can he exalt in his exaltation? How can he rejoice in that? How can he boast in that? Through Jesus. Because where is the poor man today? If he is in Christ, seated in the heavenly places. So if we are poor, guess what? We ought to meditate on and boast in what Christ has done to seat me in heaven with him right now before God. It means that I get to meditate on my exaltation, what Christ has done for me. Because in this world, it hasn't gone well at all. And everyone reviles me and I am the scorn and I am the butt of everything and everyone thinks I can't do anything and I'm no good. I'm worth nothing. But Jesus says that you're worth everything because of what he has done through his death and resurrection. You gotta take someone with you because the only way to get wisdom is to take Jesus and his death and resurrection into all of these issues of life. 
Because the trials are temptations. Are you following? Are you tracking? Are you thinking? And the, and the, and the one who is rich, he is supposed to boast in his humiliation. Well, how in the world can he do that? Because in the world's eyes, yes, typically, especially in our country, in a meritocracy, if you are wealthy, typically it's because you have done well. You work hard. And the temptation is to think that, well, I get to impose my work ethic on someone else. I get to judge other people. But if you take Jesus into that, it'll change your life. If we take Jesus into our riches and our prosperity, it'll change our lives. Because we, even though pressure is hard, even though pressure is real, everyone looks at those who are rich as successful and they've done it and we just need to find out how they've done it so that we can do it too, right? The world esteems those who have resources and who are rich. And God says, but you need to boast in your humiliation. Well, what is it that humbles you? Jesus. Because in Jesus, it has nothing to do with your work. As a matter of fact, you can't have Jesus and your presumed righteousness. You can't have Jesus and how smart you think you are to acquire everything that we have. It is the gospel that comes into our lives that makes us understand, oh, the world looks at me and sees that I'm successful, but in God's eyes, Jesus had to die for me. That my sin and my pride and my confidence and effort and my confidence in what I am, Jesus had to pay for that. And that the only way that I have any standing with God is because of what Jesus has done. It's been his perfect life for me. And I know, beloved, I know it's easy to answer the test. I know it's easy to know the right answers to the questions about the gospel. But whenever we get pushed into those situations and get to feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know what we start doing? We start talking about and leaning on our, our accomplishments, our name, the crises we've lived through and done something because of that. When we get pushed, we have a tendency to fall back on who we think we are based on what we have done. You feel that? Yeah, we can answer the test. But functionally every day, we live as if we have accomplished everything ourselves. But when you bring Jesus into your life and you appropriate what he has done, when we bring that into our lives, we begin to realize this. I know a lot of people that I would consider to be really smart. Some smarter than I am. I know a lot of people who work really hard Harder than I do, at least equally as hard as I do. For whatever reason, they're not as successful as I am. Wonder why that is. God, why me? Why me? We all know people that just haven't gotten the breaks that we have, don't we? We all know people who are super smart and super hardworking, but they just can't seem for whatever reason 
to take off, right? When you bring the gospel into your life, you begin to realize and begin to think about, I need to boast in my humiliation that Jesus had to die for me. And the reason I am where I am is not because of what I've done, but because of God and the grace that he has given me. And maybe that might work into me a more generous disposition. Maybe that might make me a generous person who is comfortable pursuing and engaging those who aren't exactly like me. Because as the text says, it spends a lot more time talking about the rich person, doesn't it? But the rich person will ultimately fade because the possessions are not going to last. They're all temporary. But to bring Jesus into your life means that whatever resources you have, you can use them for his glory. Now that's a game changer. And that doesn't cut back our desire for productivity or our career at all. It means that we can be productive and use those things for the glory of God, not self. Do you see? There's a universal problem, and it's sin and brokenness, and we're responsible for that. But when we face temptation, we bring someone with us. We bring Jesus. Because whether we're rich or whether we're poor, what Christ has done is what builds unity. And it's what makes us unique in a world that wants us to be tribal. The gospel is what makes us realize that we are no better than anyone else. And that following God and receiving what he says of us doesn't mean that we are immune from any trial or any temptation or any result. It means that God defines who we are. And that's enough. Enough.